from Interfaith Alliance. This is The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in Washington, D.C. On October 18th, Interfaith Alliance presented a briefing on Capitol Hill. The title of the briefing was Banned Beliefs, How People of Diverse Faiths Are Fighting to Protect Our Public Schools and Libraries. The panel was comprised of the honorary host, Congressman Jamie Raskin, Tracy D. Hall, former executive director of the American Library Association, Anisha Singh, executive director of the Sikh Coalition, and Cameron Samuels, co-founder of Students Engaged in Advancing Texas. We are growing the state of belief, building on our 17-year history by partnering with Religion News Service. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation, the State of Belief podcast that I want to make sure you are subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. It would really help to have you subscribe and to tell people you're close to about the conversations you are hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you made a donation, thank you for helping keep these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now, here's part one of Banned Beliefs, How People of Diverse Faiths are fighting to protect our public schools and libraries. I feel strongly about this issue because I think that we need um, more politicians reading books and fewer politicians banning books. Um, and um, so I am thrilled that the Interfaith Alliance has uh, picked this up, um, you know, somewhat counterintuitively as a cause, but I think it's great. Censorship uh, of books, censorship of curriculum, censorship of teachers, um, censorship of ideas and free speech and free discourse are always an exercise of power. Um, and they're nothing that <clears throat> leads to the moral or spiritual improvement of society. And I'll give you a good example of that. Um, uh, about a month ago, I think it was, um, one of my colleagues in the House Oversight Committee, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, decided to display pornography uh, in our um, hearing room um, in a hearing that was putatively about um, uh, whether there was political interference in the Hunter Biden investigation. So she showed some pornographic pictures that allegedly came from the hard drive of uh, Hunter Biden, although we don't know because we've never seen the, the hard drive of um, his his computer. But anyway, um, there was a, I, I, I couldn't see it myself because I didn't have my glasses on, but I was sitting next to uh, AOC and I said, well, Alex, what is that? She said, I think those are pictures of live sex acts going on. And uh, so there was an uproar in our hearing room and um, Lauren Boberg actually came up to me and said, like, this is outrageous. You know, I said, I know, I mean, somebody's got to do something about the fanaticism and extremism but I went up to Marjorie Taylor Greene and I said, Marjorie, you know, if those pictures had been in a book, you would have banned the book. <laughs> but you just showed them to everybody. Um, and um, it struck me that 
um, you know, because, you know, in both cases, banning a book because you don't like the message or the content or the pictures or whatever um, is an exercise in power. And so is showing uh, pictures is an exercise in power if you think that's going to be to your uh, advantage. And, um, you know, we need to stand up for the values of freedom of expression and freedom of discourse and, um, you know, uh, as Reverend Rauschenbusch was saying, um, actual intellectual exchange and learning. And by the way, one of the things that we learn a lot when we read books and articles from different perspectives is about the complexity and the conflicts within particular traditions, within particular faiths, within particular histories. You don't just get some kind of, um, you know, rah-rah PRism. You understand the complexity of people coming from different kinds of communities and histories. And so all of that is extinguished and flattened out by censorship. Um, so anyway, um, I, I think it's great what you guys are doing. And I, I thank you for standing up for your speech and its closely connected value, freedom of uh, religious worship. And, um, you know, one of, one of my colleagues who was posing as a big champion of religion got up to say the other day, well, the moral downfall of America was in 1962 and Engel versus Vitale when the Supreme Court banned prayer in the public schools. And I had to uh, rise to remind them the Supreme Court never banned prayer in the public schools. As long as there are pop math quizzes, there will be prayer in the public schools. Uh, anyone can pray whenever he or she wants to pray. It's just that the government can't dictate that you must pray or must pray in a particular way. Um, and uh, that is a hard fought principle of religious freedom in our history, which uh, again is in peril during these times of increasing censorship and protests. So um, I'm going to hang out for as long as I can to hear these great panelists, and thank you very much for being here, everybody. Thank you very much, Representative Raskin. We are, we are so glad. This is an extraordinary group of people, and I am so excited to introduce them to you. First, we will hear from Tracy uh, D. Hall, who was most recently the executive director of the American Library Association, which she led since 2020. She has a background ranging from hands-on librarian to work at the Joyce Foundation and the City of Chicago. Tracy's background includes serving as assistant dean at Dominican University, all of which is to say she has seen the power of words, of literacy, of books from many angles, and also sees the threat of banned books and banned beliefs as well. I'm going to introduce all three of you, and then we can go one by one. I did want to mention uh, one of our panelists, who is a wonderful woman named Amberine Khan, who is uh, an a, uh, interfaith uh, leader and also um, a, a woman who has kids in the Maryland Public School and has been very active there, wanted to be with us. She has a family emergency, uh, something, something dear to her heart. And so she is very sorry not to be with us, but we keep her in our thoughts and, and, and are so grateful for the work that she does. Next on our panel is Anisha Singh, Executive Director of the Sikh Coalition, 
a first-generation Sikh America. Anisha is an attorney and civil rights leader with more than 15 years of experience in public interest and social justice issues, legal and policy advocacy work, and grassroots organizing. Prior to her role at the Sikh Coalition, she served as Director of Judiciary and Democracy Affairs at Planned Parenthood, Federation of America, and has worked for, at several positions at the Center for American Progress. Welcome. And finally, Cameron Samuels, a student leader who is currently a sophomore at Brandeis University. As a high school student, Cameron organized efforts against book bans and LGBTQ internet censorship in their home state of Texas. And Samuel now organizes a coalition called Students Engaged in Advancing Texas, SEAT, to demonstrate youth visibility in education policymaking, recently testifying before the US Senate Judiciary Committee at a hearing on book bans. I'd like to start with each of you offering an opening statement, and then we'll, we'll follow up with questions. Thank you all for being here. And please join me in a round of applause for each of them. We're so grateful for their time. All right, good morning, everyone. And I definitely want to thank the Interfaith Alliance um, for bringing us all together. It's wonderful to see uh, this room full. There are a few seats uh, in the front. And I have to take this moment to um, thank you, Congressman Raskin. You continue to be on the right side of history. And so many of the arguments that I think that are so prescient and important um, to the preservation of our foundational rights, and chiefly among them, and interconnected, of course, um, our freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And for me specifically, when I think about freedom of speech, the right to read. So I want to uh, just uh, carry on with, I think, a quote that I think should frame uh, our meeting today, and is, of course, um, it is by a frequently banned author, Ray Bradbury, and I want us to kind of think about this. He said um, at the height of um, his own books being restricted and censored, he said the problem in our country isn't with books being banned, but with people no longer reading. You don't have to burn books to destroy a culture. Just get people to stop reading them. Now, when I remind you, and I just uh, kicked off with the Toronto Public Library, they have a whole year of really focusing on censorship and the threat um, of censorship to, um, to their democracy. Um, one, one of the things that they had modeled after Chicago Public Library was a book sanctuary where they had the most frequently banned books all together. And, and there, right in the center, was the Holy Bible. So I, I want us to think about that because I know when we look at the work of the uh, American Library Association, um, the, the focus of the campaign UniteAgainstBookBans.org is to really allow us to see the role of reading in the preservation of our democracy and why it is so important that we not take this moment lying down. But I also want to speak to something else that I think is quite important, especially at this particular moment. In addition to the Bible, the Talmud, as well as the Quran, are also three of the most frequently challenged books. And it is not a coincidence that um, in 2021, when I got a chance to visit the US Pavilion at the World Expo in Dubai, the Library of Congress had loaned Thomas Jefferson's Quran as the centerpiece of the US Pavilion because the Quran, as we know, was so important in 
Jefferson's lodging the arguments that would lead to the Declaration of Independence. And there's so much written about that particular text. So when we um, come to this moment, I think it is important that we are understanding that we cannot, we cannot have freedom of religion without freedom of speech. We cannot have freedom of religion without defending the right to read. And if this was not, and this is my last sort of opening statement, and I was uh, talking about this with Paul, as if this were something that I was just conjecturing. I was on a plane uh, yesterday and flying here, and on my row at the end was Mayor Nancy Rotering of Highland Park, Illinois, um, you know, which of course she's a mayor who models what happens when, uh, what national leadership looks like when tragedy strikes a, 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 a small town in the wake of the shooting that happened in Highland Park. So we're beginning a conversation. She's like, well, what, what are you doing? And I'm, I said, I'm, I'm a librarian. I love libraries. She started to talk about how important the library was um, to their having a discussion in Highland Park about the tragedy. And then comes along a pastor, Pastor Eddie from Janesville, Wisconsin. And as he joins the conversation, we're like, we're talking about censorship. We're talking about the place of, of libraries and combating censorship. And, and, and we're also talking about um, the place of libraries in supporting the freedom of religion and access to religious texts. And he says, yes, I really want to say to congregations who are acting as if stewardship looks like censorship, I want to combat that by quoting Philippians 4 and 5, which says, let your reasonableness, let your reasonableness be known to all men. And in that, the Apostle Paul is saying to his disciples, learn to disagree without fighting, for that is a sign of discipleship. So I really want to stop here. I know we'll have other questions and other um, opportunities to talk more about the connection between freedom of speech, um, the right to read, and freedom of religion. But I definitely want to uh, underscore what you're saying there, Paul. We cannot act, and I'm saying this as um, the niece of two pastors. We cannot act as if our Christian stewardship or our faith stewardship is contingent on censorship. It's the exact opposite. We must be fighting for the right to read, for the right specifically to read texts that underscore belief. Thank you so much. What a wonderful opening. Um, and thank you so much to the Interfaith Alliance for creating this space, especially given the moment we are all in right now. And thank you again, Representative Raskin, for your leadership in the House um, uh, and, and just all your hard work um, in, in this space as well. Um, my name is Anisha. I'm the Executive Director at the Sikh Coalition. And um, it's no surprise the Sikh uh, community is no stranger to what can happen um, when hatred wins, um, when hatred is fueled. Um, and one of the things we say often at the Sikh Coalition is uh, ignorance fuels animosity. Um, and that's true today when you see um, this heightened anxiety and this heightened ignorance um, and need for ignorance, this fear that is being perpetuated and, and, and um, spread when there's a conversation about banning books that can really um, grow our knowledge, right? Knowledge is power, and yet there's this effort to, to stifle that. Um, you know, in the days and weeks and months after 9-11, I was very young, um, and I was 
it's like so many in my community, just thinking of two kind of identities. One is as an American, just mourning with the country, and another as a sick American, kind of grappling with the fact that there was so much ignorance, that people didn't understand who Sikhs were, that people didn't understand who my community was. And I had the privilege before that to not really notice that. Um, and it was, you know, seeing uh, my fellow Sikh classmates being bullied in school. It was seeing that heightened um, rates and statistics that were coming out of um, Sikh students being bullied at schools, of hate incidents, of employment discrimination. And the thing that kept coming up is how do we educate folks? How do we make sure that people really understand who Sikhs are to talk about the beauty of our religion, to stand in um, partnership with our Muslim brothers and sisters and other faiths that are also dealing with a similar situation? And that's how the Sikh Coalition was formed. And one of the initial um, realizations was we have to educate our students. We have to do that proactive work on the front end to make sure that our youth are being raised to really look to books, look to education, to understand different fates, to read about different perspectives, to hear directly from individuals from different communities and see their own viewpoints, right? Not from hearsay, but directly from the source. And what better way than through books? And so uh, you know, why are we here on this panel today and why are we sitting in this room for this conversation? It's because we truly do believe that there's a direct correlation between allowing individuals, especially young kids, to have the knowledge, to have access to the knowledge and the different perspectives to shape our narrative and to really understand who communities are, who and how they came into this country, you know, how we live, how we contribute to society, um, and to, again, fight that ignorance and bring down some of these statistics that we're seeing. We are, six are, are constantly ranked in the top uh, groups of, of people who are um, victims of hate. Despite our population size, we tend to, to be in the top three. And that continues to be the case, you know, and we've seen these waves and we are in such a, um, a moment right now in our, in our history and in, in our country and in the world where access to books and access to education are more important than ever before. Um, so looking forward to this conversation. Hi, everyone. I am Cameron. I am a student from Texas. I'm Jewish, and I am non-binary. If we had more books like Congressman Raskin's in Texas, I'm sure our state would be at a much better state right now. We, we need more books like yours, Congressman, and we need more books that teach students what we need to know. I, I always grew up loving education. Actually, in kindergarten, interestingly enough, I told my classmates, why couldn't we have school year-round? I, I, I just couldn't stop learning. I love learning. And bookstores and libraries were my favorite places as a child. These were places where I could go to learn more about the world and see beyond what was in my peripheral. I... I could really continue learning and becoming a better person by learning about experiences I'm unfamiliar with, learning about cultures and identities and topics, subjects that I wouldn't necessarily learn about in the classroom because there's only so much that you can learn in a certain amount of time every day in a classroom. And this was a way for me to engage in higher learning on my own. And Unfortunately, not everyone is that way. 
And censorship is right now an affront to the, to identity. Censorship is about the status quo. It's about free expression. It's about what is acceptable and what is not. Who dictates the narrative? Who controls what the status quo is? And right now that status quo is one that is very restricted, that is keeping many people marginalized because of identity, because of faith, because of these inherent characteristics that we have as humans that certain people just simply disagree with. But law is very arbitrary and we can shatter it in months of organizing. It just took three months in my school district to build this movement where I had spoken at a school board meeting calling to light the censorship because I felt compelled to stand up as a student. Well, I should have been learning in the classroom, spending my Monday night doing homework, honestly, or just having fun with my family and friends. I was instead at a school board meeting and standing up for my rights as a student, for my freedom to read, and for my identity as someone who is non-binary, who uses they, them pronouns, and is queer. That was the topic of conversation at a school board meeting that should have been focused on the student achievement, but instead they were focused on identity politics. And this, just three months later, looked drastically different, where I had been the only student in the room and the only person on this side calling to light censorship and standing up for the freedom to read, we instead had a room filled with supporters three months later. And that has continued on month after month that spring of my senior year in high school. This was in spring of 2022. This was a movement that we built as students and now has grown into Students Engage in Advancing Texas, where we're demanding a seat at the table in decisions that directly affect us every day in classrooms and our future. Censorship affects our futures. And that's exactly why we are organizing and unfortunately have been organizing. We, we shouldn't have been compelled to do this, but we need that support. We need others to be joining us in that fight. And that's what motivates me every day because I know that this is a community that we're building in this work this is a community that we are relying on each other for support when the status quo keeps us marginalized. And there is never a time that we should be looking away because Heinrich Hein, poet philosopher in the 1800s said that wherever they burn books, in the end, they will burn people. And we saw just decades later that actually happened in the Holocaust. And we are seeing that continue just decades and decades, the Comstock laws we saw in the 80s with again, and just again and again and again. And we are seeing this continue in the present day. And it's most definitely about identity. And as someone of Jewish faith, I am very compelled to pursue justice where it matters, to show up where these decisions are being made, um, because if I am not doing it, then who will? That is our belief as Jewish people. If not us, then who? And I think that's a message that 
I want to carry into this panel as we are such a great, amazing panelists who have such great perspectives. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what we all have to say. I want to give uh, Representative Raskin the opportunity, if he wants to follow up with anything that he just heard, um, you know, you're, you, you've, you've given us an opening statement, but do you have any, you know, questions or inquiries or, you know, I, I hand the moderator mic to you for a moment and, and see what, what, what has struck you about what you've heard so far. Well, I, I thank you, Paul. I appreciate that very much. Um, the, I'm just impressed about where the interfaith community is based on um, all of these contributions, um, because you know the original attacks on free speech in our country were the blasphemy laws. Um, you know the idea of people speaking outside of an orthodox religious view or perspective, and now um, it's so impressive to hear. You know all of our panelists talk about how fundamentally important it is to people's expression and development of faith that they be able to write the books they want to write and read the books that they want to read. Um, and um, it you know, reinforces my sense that uh, a lot of what is being uh, censored is speech that encourages people to think for themselves. Um, mm. I remember when I was a kid uh, reading Haim Potok's book called The Chosen. Um, and, um, you know, that was a book about a kid who was um, kind of stifled and bristling under um, the constrictions of religion. And so, you know, it, it, it's not just that it would have exposed other kids who are not Jewish to what it was like to be growing up Jewish, but also to look at the internal conflicts within a particular right. religious faith and the things that people go through. And, and that is something that establishes a lot of uh, commonality and affinity among people um, because uh, religion's a really important part of life and it gives a lot of meaning to people, but it's also something that people struggle with too. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and that is something that is revealed through the process of literature and self-reflection. So. Um, I, I enjoyed very much uh, everybody's, um, you know, thoughts about this. And, um, you know, I'd be curious to hear more, you know, about Texas, about what was the nature of the attacks that were going on. Uh, was it at the local level or at the state level? And, what, you know, where did that come from? I and mean, when I read these long lists of banned books in Texas, I just wonder, you know, who came up with those lists? And, did they read the books or did they not read the books? Because it's, in my mind, it's kind of a conundrum. If they've read the books, they're basically saying it's okay for them to read the books. They just don't want anybody else to read the books. And if they haven't read the books, why are they censoring them in the first place? Mm. You know? mm. so. what, I, what I like about that question is it's about like, how do we, how do we mobilize to counteract, you know, and recognize what is being, what is happening uh, across the country? And then how do we, as people of diverse beliefs and faith mobilize in um, greater intensity, greater strategic um, acumen and, uh, and success to counteract this. And because I think, you know, I, I truly believe that we are on um, the, the American side of this and, and that we are on the side that the majority, the vast majority of American people agree with. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that you've seen 
um, the response uh, to book bans. And if there's any wisdom that you have specifically for an effective way that religious communities might be part of the reason we're doing this is to figure out what's what would be effective. And you've had a front row, row seat. So maybe you could offer us some wisdom in that area. Yeah, definitely. You, and I want to um, call out some of my colleagues here, um, now former from the American Library Association, if they can raise their hands, because I think that, yeah, thank you. I think that um, libraries have always been on the front lines you know, of conversations like this. Um, but I also think that this is a moment that we cannot take lying down. When I uh, go back and I look at the McCarthy era under Senator uh, Joseph McCarthy, where we saw 30,000 books banned or burned, you know, that inspired 70 years ago uh, uh, President Eisenhower to say, don't join the book burners, right? Um, I think about this, uh, specifically, I would say to the faith community, don't sit this conversation out. Because um, this is um, a conversation that is using censorship as a Trojan horse um, for um, other planned encumbrances and circumscriptions of foundational uh, human rights. And, and we see that. We see that. Um, uh, we also see a lot of the legislation in, in states and um, in municipalities. A lot of this is happening at the state level, um, for sure, to speak back to Congressman Raskin. Where is this happening? A lot at the state level is moving down to municipal um, um, levels. Obviously, you know, it looks like it's a grassroots effort, but it's not coming from the grassroots. It's very much organized. You know, there's a, a lot, you know, that, uh, you know, that could be said there. Um, but I think really what's important is that um, we, we really fight this at a grassroots level. We really need our right to read right now. Um, but there are a couple of things that I'm noticing that are really, really effective. One is speaking up. We need faith communities and we need anyone who understands what is happening to speak up and not to be silent. That's, that silence is what allowed um, a majority of people who, like today, more than 70% of people, regardless of political party, recognize that censorship is a violation of our human rights um, and our foundational constitutional rights. Um, we, we understand that. But at the same time, there are so many people who are waiting for someone else to stand up and rescue, right? Come to the rescue. We need everyone in this room right now to do a couple of things. One is to let people know that you are here today and to let people know that you believe that free people read freely, which is one of um, the ideals of the American Library Association and I think is foundational to American librarianship. Uh, the second thing is to support um, any place where books are being banned. Support your school and public libraries. Schools are, are really under it. They are under attack, and as is public education. So let's understand that. And again, when I say that censorship is um, a Trojan horse, um, it is because I am watching legislation around censorship precede legislation to defund public libraries, like we're seeing the defunding of a lot of public service institutions. And today, libraries are the most visited public service institution in the country. So um, support, also support your local bookstores because we're beginning to see a lot of um, censorship attempts or people confiscating books um, at um, especially independent bookstores. The third thing is read the books. We, we know that um, today uh, there are a significant number of people who are not reading a full book after they graduate either high school or college. And so reading, just that sort of like 
fluency, civic fluency, um, idea fluency, civic literacy is needed. The reason why we're arguing and attacking and turning so violent is because we no longer have a tolerance for other ideas. And why? Because we um, are shopping alone. You know, we are shopping online. We're not waiting in line at the store. We're not going into places where we could come into contact with somebody who might be different from us. So we should be reading together. In my community, in my neighborhood in Chicago, we formed a banned book club, which is bringing neighbors out to read together and into each other's living room. I've met more people in my neighborhood through the Bam Books Club than um, <laughs> ever. I'm telling you, I'm like, oh man, you know, and I know the dogs too and some of the cats. But um, the other thing I would say again is um, support organizations like the American Library Association, like PEN America, organizations that are, are on, the front, on the front lines of, of this. Um, and also go to uniteagainstbookbans.org, sign up for weekly reminders of things that you can do. And lastly, write letters to the editor and please follow and track anytime you see a hearing about book banning happening, go there and be there. Let people know because you know what's happening is a room is being flooded with people who have not read the book and I've attended a lot of online hearings and some in-person hearings and I can almost repeat it. I know exactly when they're going to say, I have read the book, but please, I mean, we don't want that to stay. I mean, that is such a it's such an opt-out, and it's so embarrassing, and the rest of the world is watching. So it looks like, it, it almost looks like we are throwing our away, our giving away um, our democracy to people who are not informed. And I really can say this, the, the fact is people are not reading these books. People are being, they're being sent copy and copied and pasted lists of books with just the passage that people think are offensive and saying, don't you think that you should go to X, Y, and Z to your school board or to your uh, public library board and ban these books? And people who feel like, I do want to get involved. Is this what stewardship looks like? You know, they're taken by that. They're swayed. They're persuaded to do that. And they're standing up and they're banning books. Some some of the sometimes the highest works of literature, uh, and um, and they haven't read them. We cannot let that stand. So those are just some uh, things that we can do. And I yeah. definitely want to say I'm seeing faith communities. One of the greatest um, pastors um, living, Otis Moss Jr., um, actually wrote a wonderful article that I read last year, um, really talking about. I mean, at the beginning of this year now, um, really talking about why it is a requirement of our faith that we stand against censorship. And so I also think we should look to some of the great religious teachers of this moment. Great. I appreciate that. Also, there, there are churches that have banned book clubs. There are others. Uh, so faith communities can actually do, be a leader here. More of banned beliefs, how people of diverse faiths are fighting to protect our public schools and libraries is coming right up. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.
Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. You're hearing our Capitol Hill briefing from earlier this month, titled Banned Beliefs, How People of Diverse Faiths Are Fighting to Protect Our Public Schools and Libraries, featuring honorary host, Congressman Jamie Raskin, Tracy Hall, former Executive Director of American Library Association, Anisha Singh, Executive Director of the Sikh Coalition, and Cameron Samuels, co-founder of the Students Engaged in Advancing Texas. The Sikh Coalition is doing amazing work on this, about making sure that information is available about Sikh uh, life uh, and that, that, that there is a strategy about erasing it. And, uh, and so it's so important what you're doing. So can, can you tell a little bit more about the strategy that the Sikh Coalition has developed? Yeah, thank you. I mentioned this in my opening, but you know, again, after 9-11, one of the pillars that we started thinking about in our work was how do we educate folks? And um, for the last 15 plus years, we have successfully added SICKI uh, to state standards in 17 states plus plus DC. Um, to, uh, to our knowledge, we're the only organization that has successfully been able to do that, and that is through coalition, right? Um, when we're hearing about potential proactive legislation that is being introduced, um, I'll give you a really uh, specific example. In New York earlier this year, there was legislation that was being proposed and, and written um, in the state legislature for API uh, history inclusion in state standards and funding behind that too, which is critically important. Um, and so a lot of that uh, work, you know, we joined a coalition of partners throughout the AAPI community. And, you know, the Sikh community is in this um, place between race, religion, and ethnicity based on our identity and our and just the um, challenges our community has faced over the last 22 years. Um, and so we were able to sit in that coalition, bring that perspective and bring some of our experience working on state standards in other states um, to really build out some of that work. And it's no different than any any other work that we do, right, as, as organizers, as advocates. Um, it's bringing people together. It's uh, going to, lo to, to lobby um, with your state legislators about the bill and the importance of the bill. It's getting community members to show up for those lobby visits. It's getting them to, to sign on to a letter or, you know, creating a, a what we call P2A, phone to action, right, having people call their members of Congress or their state legislators, depending on the bill, um, and getting your voice out there um, and getting diverse voices out there, interfaith, right, interracial um, voices that really can speak to the importance of that legislation. Yeah. There's two ways about this too, right? There's the reactive. There are a lot of harmful legislation out there right now federally and in states that are trying to ban books, that are trying to silence minority communities, and how are we making those calls and getting folks activated and creating these coalitions um, that are strong voices uh, against those, but also how are we paying attention to those bills that are being proposed or the potential to ask your state legislators to propose bills to help them draft that language so we can proactively make sure that our schools are teaching about our various backgrounds and religions and faiths and um, racial um, history as well. When we're in a situation where there's anti-critical race theory um, uh, narratives going on, there's book banning, that kind of proactive 
efforts and the coalition building is more important than ever. Yeah, I really appreciate that. We don't have to be reactive. We can pro be proactive. We can reach out to one another. We will not, no one will do this alone. It will happen because we work together. And so I also want to uh, acknowledge uh, our friend from PEN America who is here and thank PEN America for being such a great partner along with the American Library Association to Interfaith Alliance in our work in this area. Um, I, I also, um, I want to just, just along the lines of what Anusha was saying, please, you have outside, there is a QR code about the legislation that uh, Representative Raskin introduced into Congress. It is so important that you do that QR code. Show your support for this bill. It is it's an example of being proactive and, 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 and working to ensure and show that, um, that we are not going to accept uh, banned books. I, have, I want to ask one more question of Cameron because, and this is a sensitive question because it was one of the, I would say, most grotesque things I've seen recently in the, in the chambers. Um, but Cameron, you recently wonderfully testified at the Senate Judiciary Committee on book bans. And then Senator Kennedy of Louisiana read what appeared to be highly offensive content from books with LGBTQ content without context. And he seemed to indicate that anyone who was speaking up was supporting or pushing pornography. And, and it was really, it was grotesque. And there was no one in the chamber who knew how to respond to it, unfortunately, which was a grave mistake. And I just really appreciate, you were in the room. Could you tell us a little bit about how that, how that played out? Some of the knowledge that you wish you could have imparted to the senators who were in the room and, and something, something about how that can prepare all of us for these, these grotesque moments. Senator Kennedy. <laughs> so this has been an age long issue conflating what is high school material intended for audiences of a particular age, stage in life, and conflating that to what would be hypothetically in elementary school libraries, considering that age inappropriate. And that really overlooks age relevancy and discredits educators because these books that were mentioned don't show up in these elementary school libraries. Educators know that because they're not intended for those audiences. I would be so flabbergasted if someone in elementary school were reading those books because they are not age relevant to elementary school students in that matter. And many of these books weren't even in my school library to begin with. These books touch on tough topics that are so important to learn. And many students might not be ready for them, but when they are, it should be their judgment. Students need that right to read protected by school district policies, and that should not interfere with their ability to read. Certain people in the community, but really what we're seeing is those lists of hundreds of banned books being pushed by interest groups and politicians driving this concerted effort to ban books. That's what we're really seeing. And this has become a battle over who can decide for everyone what is allowed in schools, what students are able to read. And Senator Kennedy was indeed fear-mongering, stoking fear of books that people 
especially I'm sure him, had not read. People haven't read these books but are taking for granted what politicians are saying are in these books. If they read them for themselves, they would realize that those quotes that he shared were supposed to make someone feel uncomfortable. It was a scene about abuse or it was a text message that made someone feel uncomfortable. I'm sure many of you have received text messages like that possibly. And how do you react to that? How do you respond to it? How will that carry with you for the rest of your life? And these books can give you words for trauma. These books can give you words to relate to, to explain to yourself and to others. This is so important to know. And by gatekeeping books in school libraries, students will not learn about these tough topics. We, we lose that literacy to be able to be exceptional leaders in society, to be well-cultured, and to be the amazing people that we can all be if we actually read books after high school, if we read books and actually learned the value that comes from them. So there, there is a lot yeah. that can be done from that response because that's continuing. That's this winning message. They have this winning message, and how do we respond with it. There can be a faith response. Faith leaders and communities can respond um, by reading these books and understanding before we actually make decisions about them. We need more understanding. Anyone can have an opinion for or against. People can banter. They can, they can concur. This, this is something that happens, but that opinion might be so frivolous yeah. if we don't have that understanding. Uh, one of the things that you said when you were in that setting, you told me was that was not the first time someone had pulled that stunt on you. So you were like ready for it. You can bring, if, if anybody has any questions, we, we're going to just have a minute for like one, maybe one or two questions. So it was, I just think being ready for things like that, understanding that context matters. And uh, um, I just want to share personally, like I have two children who are in elementary school and, you know, I have a, a husband and they have a wonderful life. And we, we are so blessed that at our elementary school, they learn about different families and it's not a deal. No one is pushing any gay agenda. They're just making the other people aware in the school that yeah, there's like different kinds of people at the school and everybody's welcome. And the effort to say like, don't say gay to young people just does really erase my family and my um, and and our, our, our work. And also, uh, you know, as, as parents, but also the, the work of our church which, you know, baptized our children, where we, we show up and, you know, they're in a, a lamb costume and for the, 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 the Christmas play. Um, so, so, but it, it, it doesn't allow that, that that existence even can be an, an option and is, it, it exists. So all of these things about, you know, just erasing stories, it is erasing life. And I want to impress upon you, that, that this is a religious issue. We have to take it very, very seriously. I think we have maybe time for one question. Do we, any, um, Darcy, can you bring up a question and we'll, um, we'll offer it. I'm sorry we don't have time for more, but we, you, um, all of you know that you can reach out to us at interfaithalliance.org. Um, we are here for you uh, and we really look forward to, um, to being, uh, being partners with you in the future. Um, 
Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this because it's like a wonderful it's a whole thing, and I think it might be a great thing to end on. German pastor Martin Neumaler famously wrote, "If they came first for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist, then they came for the the unionists, uh, and then they came for the Jews, and then they they ca came for me." The, you know this famous quote about when do you speak up? Uh, do you see parallels in this in the targeting of books by and for about various communities for censorship today? I think that's like a perfect question for each of you to respond to uh, as a way to close. Yeah, great. So this is a question about identity, right? So I, yes, the, we've seen this history play out so many times over decades and decades and decades, and it's continuing. And yet, once again, we are in this tumultuous time. We are in this pivotal moment of democracy where censorship is so undemocratic because it's about suppressing those that differ from the status quo, who are the, the ones who are the odd ones out, like I was school. I was the, the odd one out in school, the one who actually loved to learn, the one who this and that was Jewish. The, the society in school was not shaped to support my faith. I, I always had to get unexcused absences um, for religious holidays, and there were no gender-neutral bathrooms. And so by erasing this history, by erasing our voices, we are no longer in a pluralistic democracy where we can't hear from those we need to hear from most. It's yeah. about silence. Yeah. And that's why censorship is so undemocratic. Thank you. That was beautifully said. I, I'll, I'll add, you know, the Sikh community, South Asian community, Arab communities, um, we've been considered perpetual foreigners, right? Um, and whether you look at the way the media portrays us, whether you look at the way narratives um, are, are being just hashed out, um, you know, we're also the first to be considered a terrorist, right? And so when you're looking at those narratives, um, it is so critically important that we have something to combat that, and that is books, right? That is these voices and these firsthand experiences that we can read about, we can talk about, we can lift up so that we're not, to your point, erasing these stories and allowing others to speak for us and create our own history and, and narrate our own history. Um, and I'll, I'll leave with this, which is, I, I truly do think that, especially in this moment, it's about the solidarity that we can bring together. Yes. Um, one of the things that is so moving to me is when 9-11 happened and the misconception that Sikhs were Muslims was one of the main reasons that we were falling victim to hate, we did not turn away from our brothers and sisters in the Muslim community and say, we are not them. We got closer, we locked arms, and we work together. And now we have one of the strongest coalitions because over 20 years, we have been working with the Muslim South Asian Arab communities to build our work together. And our voice and our work and our progress has been stronger for it. And I think now more than ever, we need to be reminded of that, that we cannot do this in silos. That's what they want. And that is why they are taking away our voices because without that coalition, without that solidarity piece, we cannot be louder than them. And so really want to emphasize that, that important piece, um, coming together, look to your left, look to your right, as they say, right? And how do we have something in common where we can fight for this together? Because this is our moment. 
I, I want to just end with that. This is our moment, right? I'm reminded so much, especially um, coming into D.C. yesterday, um, I was uh, just reminded so much of Dr. King, right? And, um, and what Dr. King reminds us is that if we are going to pursue freedom, we must see everyone's freedom as inextricably bound mm. with ours, right? And so we are definitely seeing assaults on, um, on women and people of color and uh, people uh, religious uh, majorities and minorities. We are seeing also, too, attacks on the rights of young people to determine um, their identity and their future. And so I think that this uh, quote is such an important one to end with. I do want to say this, and it's just a personal story because I'm thinking about my grandmother. My grandmother was so religious, she didn't even allow us to use the dice um, when we played Monopoly or any of those kinds of games. We had to just make some number cards and just pull like randomly there. Because, But the one place that she would go um, be besides church all the time is it, the reason why I became a librarian. It's because she believed in the right to read. She was denied that opportunity growing up in the rural South um, in the era of either no libraries or segregated libraries, which is why I keep coming back to libraries. But my grandmother believed that we should be able to choose what we wanted to read, and she allowed that. So she didn't allow the dice. <laughs> but she allowed me to choose the books um, that I wanted to read. So I just want to make sure that I end, I honor my grandmother, Bessie, uh, because my grandmother is right here saying, yes, these two rights are connected. And we must never forget that. And we cannot let them be eroded. Please join me in, in thanking all of our panelists. Uh, thank you three, so much. I just really appreciate all your wisdom and, and to all of you for being here with you with us. Um, very grateful to uh, uh, Representative Raskin for being with us so, for so long. By the way, that's a long time for a congressman to stay. And so that, that was really, really wonderful and a testimony to this panel and to all of you. Um, I want to urge all of you to um, join with us um, and let us join with you. Um, to, uh, to lift up our voice and tell policymakers that people of faith do not support censorship. We have a library of resources on our website. Please go. And we have that action alert that I mentioned earlier. Please, as you leave, do sign that action alert and contact the members of Congress. And um, I just want to also say um, that this is, this is something dear to all of us. There is so much going on in the world. And so I just encourage um, all of us in this moment to be, to listen to one another, to try to love one another, to try to main con maintain connection with people who are different from us. One of the best ways we can do that is read the narratives of people who may differ from us. And so I just invite us to use this exercise that we did this morning to also move us into a better place in this country and the world as we face the challenges we face. So thank all of you for coming here and thank again to these three great panelists. And that's all the time we have for the State of Belief this week. You've been hearing the Interfaith Alliance Capitol Hill briefing from earlier this month titled Ban Beliefs, how people of diverse faiths are fighting to protect our public schools and libraries, featuring honorary host, Congressman Jamie Raskin, 
Tracy D. Hall, former executive director of the American Library Association, Anisha Singh, executive director of the Sikh Coalition, and Cameron Samuels, co-founder of Students Engaged in Advancing Texas. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping The State of Belief going. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And if you're getting something out of this show, share it with your family and friends. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going when the show is over. Follow us at Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share the State of Belief with the people in your networks. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. The State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.